Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2. We will begin reading in verse 14. Mark chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 14. I want to read down to verse 17. Mark chapter 2, 14 through 17. Just follow me as I read the scriptures. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. It came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus. And his disciples, many publicans and sinners, sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth with and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We've been looking at the book of Mark now for some time, and just as a matter of view, I'll not go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, but just as a matter of review, last week we started with verse 13. We got verse 13 and 14. And uh, as Mark continually reminds us, the preaching and teaching of the Word of God was the mainstay of our Lord's earthly ministry. Now previously we've seen and we will also continue to see that he has involved himself in casting out unclean spirits to show his power over the evil one and to destroy the kingdom of darkness. He's also involved himself in curing the ill, healing healing the sick and the diseased as he went about doing good to his creation. But the teaching and preaching of the word of God was preeminent in his ministry. They were the mainstay of the Lord's ministry. You you pick up the book of Mark and just begin reading and you're going to find statements like Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel. Mark 1 21. They came or went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. Verse 39 of Mark chapter 1. And he preached in their synagogues. Chapter 2, verse 2. Straightway many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much about the door. And he preached the word unto them. The English word taught as it's found here in verse 13. As it, at the end of verse 13. He went forth again by the seaside and all the multitude resorted unto him and he taught them. That English word comes from a Greek word which means to hold a discourse with others in order to instruct them. To impart some instruction or to instill some doctrine or teaching. Jesus Christ taught the Word of God. You cannot escape that if you're reading the Scriptures. He read it to His hearers and He gave them the sense of it. He instructed them as to its meaning. He instilled unto them the truth of the Word of God. He instilled in them the importance of the Word of God to their soul. 
He taught them the preeminence of the Word of God in their life, and he emphasized the authority of the Word of God over all they were to believe and over how they were to live. And this is not new to the New Testament. This is throughout the Scriptures. Nehemiah 8, verse 8. We looked at that last week. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. They read it, gave the sense of what it was, and then caused them to understand what God was saying to them. That's teaching. That's preaching. And that's what our Lord was involved in. That's what His apostles were involved in. And I believe that's what we ought to be involved in. Last week we looked at verse 14 and saw the conversion of Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and learned from the rest of the scriptures that this is Matthew, the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Calls himself Matthew the publican in his gospel. Both the Lord Jesus and Matthew, as we looked last week, had risen that morning with thoughts in their heads as to how the day would proceed. Both were going about their business. Matthew's business was to collect taxes for the Romans. The Lord Jesus Christ's business was the soul of sinners. And, you know, you, you don't normally put yourself in the scriptures like this, but think about it. Matthew got up that morning, went and sat down in his table and started collecting taxes. Jesus got up that morning, went by the seaside, taught those that were there. When he was through teaching, he heads to the city. Matthew's got his day planned. I mean, he got up in the morning, I got my day planned. Every day is the same. It's going to end the same as it has always ended, he thought. But he hadn't counted on the Lord Jesus Christ coming back that day, coming by that day. From the world's point of view, from the point of view of his friends, and from the point of view of the Jews' religion, Matthew was an unlikely candidate for salvation. He was a publican, a Jew collecting taxes for the Romans. There's nothing in Matthew to recommend him to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was no impediment for the Savior. He came to save sinners, the Bible says, and after teaching by the seaside that day, he got up and came to Matthew's table. And he called Matthew to come and follow him. And the scripture says that Matthew followed him. And quickly I want to go over the points that we looked at last Lord's Day just as a matter of view. First, his call was not accidental or unlikely. Now there are some people that we look at and we say, that is not a likely candidate for salvation. (laughs) But from God's perspective, his call was not accidental or unlikely. God does everything he does on purpose. Jesus God, Jesus Christ is God, and He's not just haphazardly going from pillar to post this day. He is accomplishing His will according to His Father's purposes. Jesus was going about His business for that day, and His business was the soul of men. And that day, He was going to save Matthew from his sins. But on the same day that Jesus called Matthew at that crowded place outside the gates of that city... He left many sinners uncalled. And this is the truth that both sinners and many preachers in our day are unwilling to admit. Jesus 
came up to this crowded place. They're gathering the taxes before they come into the city. There's people everywhere. There's more tax collectors than just Matthew. He comes up and he calls Matthew. Matthew comes and follows him and he walks away. Same thing happened in John chapter 5. He goes into by the pool of Shalom uh, and there is an impotent man and he walks through this crowd of people and he saves this man and he walks out. And we see that happening over and over again in our Lord's ministry. And I asked the, que- this questions last, the question last Lord's Day, what are sinners to do with this truth? You can't pretend like it doesn't exist. You can't ignore it. It's in your face if you know anything about what's going on in this account. He walks up, he calls Matthew, he walks away. What about all the rest? So what are sinners to do with this truth? Are they to despair of ever being saved because many days have passed without the Lord calling them? Of course, the answer to the question is no. If they want to be with Jesus, they are instructed in the Scriptures as to how they can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I have talked to many people in my ministry that use the doctrine of election against themselves and persuade themselves. God is not calling me. God is not going to choose. choose. God has not chosen me. I'm not one of His, so I have no hope of salvation. And I tell them all the same. Instead of looking at the account with Matthew where he comes, he saves, and he walks away, what about the previous chapter? At the end of chapter 1, a leper came to him. Came running and bowed down to him and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What about that? Why don't you use that as an example? Why don't you come running to the Lord Jesus Christ? Ask him to cleanse you. What about the thief on the cross who's only moments away from going off into eternity, turns and looks at the Lord Jesus Christ and says, Lord, remember me. What about that? What about the scripture that says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whatever you do, and there are some here without Christ this morning, whatever you do, do not use the doctrine of election against yourself. Do not use those left uncalled in the, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and as an excuse to blame God for you remaining in your sins. The Bible teaches us that God is not reluctant to save sinners. That all who come to Him He will not cast out. And so we have on one hand this truth. Jesus walks up to the table where Matthew is. He calls him. Matthew gets up and he follows him. And when he walks away, there's this whole crowd of people. That's the truth. And on the other hand, we have this truth. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's also a truth. Do not put one against the other. Fourth, the call of God upon Matthew that day was an amazing act of mercy and grace toward Matthew. He was in a degrading business. None but the lowest of the Jews ever took the position of a publican to collect taxes for the Romans who had conquered the Jews. His call was given by the Lord Jesus Christ with full knowledge of who he was and what he had become because of his choices. And at the same time, as we preached last Lord's Day, it was also a call which included what God intended to do with the life of Matthew. We have the Gospel of Matthew. 
Did God not have that in mind when he walked to that table that morning? The sixth, his call was simple. The gospel is often made more complex than it should be. It is a simple, follow me. And in that is the doctrine of repentance, and in that is the doctrine of faith. And his call was immediate, it was effectual, Matthew followed at once. So far as we know from the rest of the scriptures, Matthew followed both spiritually as well as literally, and from that day forward, and he never stopped following the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, eight, Matthew's call opened the door of hope for others. His salvation encouraged other publicans to come to Jesus. He opened his house, gave opportunity for his friends to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. His personal ministry brought others to the Savior. His written gospel continues with us today and testifies to us today of what Jesus Christ has done, not only for him, but for a multitude of others. And that brings us to our text this morning, verse 15. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Matthew's call opened the door of hope for others. Every new convert, every old convert, is surrounded by a number of people who they can influence. I used to love, I used to, I love to see God save a new person, a, a sinner. Because I'm thinking to myself, that one sinner is surrounded by how many more? How many more? How many times going door to door do we get an opportunity to sit in someone's house, see them come to Christ, and they say, Friday I'm going to have my whole family here, will you come by? I mean, some of y'all know Leo. I won't mention his last name. Some of y'all know him. I went, God going door to door, met this family. God seemed like they worked in their life. The next or a couple of weeks later, they had a Friday night Bible study. The place was packed with relatives. Leo had an afro that big. He was a drug dealer. From the west side of San Antonio. God saved him and made him a preacher. We have no idea what God's going to do when God saves a sinner to those around him. The conversion of one sinner often leads them to telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ and they too come to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have The scripture is full of these examples. The demon-filled man of the Gadarenes. Mark chapter 5 and verse 20. He wants to go with Jesus after having been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. wants to go with Jesus in the boat across the, the sea. And Jesus said, no, you go home and you tell your family, you tell your friends what I've done for you. And the Bible says he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. Matthew records later, Matthew 4.25, speaking of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis. What's the connection? God saved a sinner. And he went home and told them what God had done for him. 
the woman at the well of Sychar. You know who she is. Jesus says in the scriptures of John chapter 4, I must go through Samaria. And he sits at a well and there's a woman there. And it's not the time of day when women gather water. And she's an outcast. You know the story. By the way, that still goes on in the world. I mean, it doesn't go on in America. But there are still village wells where the women of the village come, gather their water for the day, and take it home. We saw it in India and seen it in India on a regular basis. The Lord Jesus Christ engages her, speaks to her. She goes away from him converted. Verse 28, the woman left her water pot. That's what she came for, but that's not important anymore. She went her way into the city and saith to the men. It's always struck me that she goes and talks to the men. That's her crowd. But that's who, can she, that's who she can talk to. And she goes right back to them and says, you and I used to talk about this or that, but let me tell you, she says in verse 29, come and see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Now she's got a different message. And in verse 39, the Bible says, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that I, ever I did. And then in verse 41, And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. She is converted, she is forgiven, and she's got to tell somebody about it. She's got to tell somebody about it. And so Matthew is saved and he gets up out of his table. And what does he do? He said, I've got I to gotta have a meal. I've got to invite my friends. I've got to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings me to the second point in verse 15. And that is that we should use whatever means at our disposal to reach others. Matthew had a meal made for the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples. And he invited many, many to that meal. That sounds like a good idea. Make a meal and invite some neighbors. Or make a meal and invite someone who knows the gospel so they can speak to them. You can invite me if you want to. I don't know how to talk to people. All right, invite somebody that does. I don't know what to say. Okay, get somebody in that does. Hold a Bible study in your house. That family I was talking about, every Friday night there was a Bible study in their house. They invited cousins and second cousins and third cousins and neighbors. And we met there on a regular basis and just opened up the Scriptures. Invite your friends and neighbors. Pass out tracts. Whatever you have grace to do, do. Matthew was able to open his house. If you're not able to, find out what you can do and do. God has done something for you if He has saved you. And that is worthy to be told to others. Third, let me suggest something. Invite the worst. That's hard to do. Jesus talks about those that invite their friends and get back invited to their friend's house. He said, you know, the world does that. But if you're a Christian, you have to think bigger than that. And outside of that box. 
There is not a sinner too sinful for the Lord Jesus Christ to save. Do we believe that? I was persuaded of it when Christ saved me. Am persuaded of it still this day, believing that if He could save me, then He could save any sinner. Do not just go after those you think might be interested in the gospel or those you think might be a benefit for the kingdom of God, whatever that means. I have heard that so many times in my ministry. I think that one would make a good Christian. He could really help our church. Really. How many of you would have thought that Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting Christians in the first century, would make a good candidate to a membership in a church? After he was converted, the church of Jerusalem didn't want him to be a member there. How many would have been persuaded that he would have been a good addition? How many of you could have walked by the Sea of Galilee and chose Peter? An ignorant fisherman. Because you saw in him something that could benefit the kingdom of God. No, no, no. We want to choose the best and brightest of the world. And God says not many of those are chosen. Not many of those. Sinners are the ones that God chooses and saves. Our judgment is never good in those matters. We look on the outward. When Israel came to choose a king, they wanted the tallest, the strongest. God says you're looking at the wrong thing. God oftentimes saves the worst of the worst. And God can make the worst sinner useful in His kingdom. Matthew testifies to this truth. That is a truth that is borne out by God saving Matthew that day. Mark chapter 2 now, verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth with drink and drinketh with publicans and sinners? This is... This is a perfect contrast between true religion and false religion. Verse 15, true religion. Jesus sitting in the midst of publicans and sinners talking to them. Verse 16, the Pharisees standing outside looking at what he's doing and saying, how can he do that? What a contrast there is between that which is true and real, that which belongs to God, and that which is false and belongs to men. The Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, the religious leaders of the Jews' religion were present when Jesus had healed the man of palsy in the first part of the chapter 2. On that occasion, they accused him of being a man who blasphemed against God. Now they're present again. This time, they accuse the Lord Jesus Christ of making himself unclean by associating with sinners. This is a common teaching among the Jews, but not just them. The Hindus will not eat with Diane and I because we would make them unclean. So whenever we're invited to a Hindu house to have a meal, we sit down with a meal. They might sit at the table with us, but they will not eat. How many times has that happened? The same thing is happening here. The Jews' religion has been so twisted and convoluted from the Scriptures that they no longer believe 
that God can sit with a sinner and minister to him. It's common teaching, even among some who profess to be Christians. Oh, don't go around that one. You don't want his influence. The Jews thinking on this issue is expressed throughout the scriptures. In Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee invites the Lord Jesus Christ to have a meal. He comes in. He doesn't, is not offered water to wash his feet or oil to anoint his head. And he comes into the Pharisee's house. And while in the Pharisee's house waiting for the meal, Luke 7 and verse 37 says, And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat with the Pharisees, or in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And she broke it, and she wept over him, and she ministered to his, washed his feet, and dried it with her hair. In the meantime, verse 39, the Pharisee is sitting there. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, because she's a sinner. It's a common thing through the Scriptures. You cannot read the Scriptures and not see this. The prodigal son's elder brother... He, the prodigal son came home and, and the father was glad and said, let's, let's kill the fatty cat. Let's have a party. Let's, let's have a feast. The elder brother hears the, the noise and all that's going on. And he says to one of the servants, what's going on? And the servant said unto him, verse 27 of Luke 15, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatty cat because he hath received him safe and sound. Verse 28. And he was angry and would not go in. He was angry and would not go in. So the father comes to him and entreats him. And in verse 29, he answers, said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. What a liar. He believes that he has done everything perfectly. Thou never gavest me a kid. Thou, that I might make merry with my friends. I've done everything you've asked me to do. and I've done it. It's not true, by the way. But he believes it to be so. But as soon as thy son has come, which devoured thy living with harlots. You see the attitude? You see what's going on? That pharisaical attitude that looks down upon people who fall into sin. You see that attitude? As a Pharisee stand outside of Matthew's house, what is he doing eating with sinners? This kind of attitude, this kind of accusation flows out of a self-righteousness and a false view of religion. In Luke chapter 18, we have the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or even as this publican. That attitude, that, that 
kind of thinking comes from a self-righteousness, a view of, of exalting yourself and your righteousness above others so that you are above and they are below. In John chapter 8 and verse 41, they said unto Jesus Christ, We be not born of fornication. And then in verse 48, they said, Didn't we say you were a Samaritan and have a devil? Samaritans are half-breed. They believe Mary had been impregnated by a Roman soldier. We weren't born in fornication. What are they saying? You were unclean. You're unclean. Our Father is God. In fact, that's what they say. John 8, 41. You, deed, you do the deeds of your Father. Then said they, We be not born in fornication. We have one Father, even God. That attitude of standing in self-righteous judgment against others is what the Jews had. And it stands in contrast throughout the Scriptures with true religion and undefiled religion. So what is the cure for self-righteous thinking? As I, I don't want to go beyond this point this morning in the text. Because as I was meditating on the rest of the text, I wanted to get to verse 15 or 16 and 17. I, said, I thought, no, we need to stop a minute and just look at this. Because this is, this, this is a portrayal of true religion and false religion. What is the cure for self-righteous thinking? Simply put, true conversion. True conversion will correct that kind of an attitude. How so? First, true conversion is preceded by sinners knowing themselves to be sinners. You cannot be converted to the Lord Jesus Christ till first you know yourself to be a sinner. I came to seek and to save sinners. When a man knows he's a sinner, he knows he needs a Savior. When he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes for forgiveness. Forgiveness of what? Forgiveness of sins. He comes from pardon. Pardon from what? From his guilt. That whole account in Luke chapter 18 where the Pharisee said, I thank thee God that I'm not like, is an account of two men. Let me just read it to you. Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. And he spake a parable unto them. This is Jesus speaking. Which trust unto them that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You see the connection? Trust in yourself that you're righteous and therefore what happens? Despising others. Jesus says two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican. Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all I possess. This is what I don't do. This is what I do do, God. I am thank you for that. Verse 13. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Now what he is saying there from the Greek construction is, God, I'm the sinner. I'm the one who's a sinner here. He wasn't looking at the Pharisee. He wasn't saying, what do you mean talking to me like that? Talking about me like that? He wasn't saying like, he said, Lord, I am the sinner. The man's right. I'm a publican. I'm a sinner. 
In verse 14, Jesus interjects into this parable and says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Jesus said, do you know which one went home justified? The publican. The sinner. This is the account. And this is who God saves. God saves sinners. Second, a true convert to the Lord Jesus Christ never forgets what he is before God. He never forgets that all I am is a sinner saved by grace. We say those words, but the truth of it needs to settle into our hearts. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. He said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Here is the Apostle Paul after many years of working, walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, close to the time that he would be martyred, martyred, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. In Ephesians 3 and verse 8 he says, Unto me, whom less than the least of all the saints... There is an attitude that develops through true conversion in a child of God. It doesn't come instantaneously, but it develops as we walk with God, as we try to serve the Lord, as we live day by day, seeking to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Slowly, slowly, we find this thing developing in us. I'm a sinner saved by grace. If I'm anything, it's by the grace of God. If I am able to do anything, it's by the grace of God. I have I'm chief with Paul of sinners. Third, true converts remind themselves of their condition in order to keep themselves humble before God. And I think this can be seen in the Scriptures. Romans 3 and verse 27, Paul argues concerning salvation by grace through faith. And his conclusion is this, where is boasting then? And he says, Romans 3, 27, it is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. If salvation was by works, you could boast. No, it's not excluded by the work, law of works. Instead, by the law of faith. Faith Salvation by grace through faith brings us to the place where we said, you know what, I don't have anything to boast in. I'm really not any different than the guy down the street. Have we not said to ourselves, there go I, but by the grace of God? Have we not thought it? There go I, but by the grace of God. And the longer I live as a Christian, the more I understand there is nothing in the category of what may be called sin that I am not capable of except by the grace of God except by the grace of God true converts remind themselves I don't have anything to boast in I remember the verse the first two verses I read no the second two verses I I memorized John 3.16 within a week of being converted and I mem- the next two verses I memorized was Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Those were the three verses that I had armed myself with when I went door to door. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Reminding myself again, I have no grounds to boast in the kingdom of God. Stand outside, the, looking in the window, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting among sinners, publicans, instead of saying, what is he doing? I'm saying, yes, hallelujah. Christ has come to save sinners. Just like me. Just like me. Next, true conversion leads to a true understanding of the grace of God. We mouth words about salvation by grace, but I believe... God teaches us over and over again. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, they had forgotten something about the grace of God. And he argued with them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, who maketh thee to differ from another? They were lifting themselves up. We are better because we follow Peter. No, we are better because we follow Paul. No, we are better because we follow Apollos. No, 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 no. All of you are wrong. We follow Christ. They lifted themselves up. My gift is better than your gift. You know, my gift is better than your gift. I, I should be exalted in this church. And Paul writes to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Who makes you to differ from another? Why are you a Christian? Who made you different? What hast thou as a Christian? What do you have? That you have not received. And now, if thou hast received it, that is, if it has come to you as a gift, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Why do you glory as though it's something you come up with? True conversion allows a man to understand salvation by grace, for that allows for no boasting because. All that we are and all that we ever will be is owed entirely by the grace of God. So Paul concludes that, almost concludes that epistle with 1 Corinthians 15.10 by saying, But by the grace of God I am what I am. Brethren, if we are able to do anything in the kingdom of God, if we know anything, it's by the grace of God. True conversion leads to a true assessment of ourselves which leads to true humility. I don't believe that we can have any measure of true humility until we have a true assessment of ourselves, And when we see ourselves as God sees us, not as men see us, not as, as the world may, not as our mother says, such a good little boy. No. But as God sees us. If we understand what God has done, and I think a true assessment can be made and then... A measure of true humility can be there. Paul writes to the Romans and says in verse chapter 12, verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly, according as God hath dealt with to every man the measure of faith. Think soberly, not to think more highly than you ought to think, but instead think soberly. To think soberly means to think of yourself in true terms. To form a humble and modest estimate of our character and our per person. 
John Gill writes, to consider that what gifts, ability, light, and knowledge they have, they have them, not of themselves, but of God. In addition, they have not all faith and all knowledge. They do not know the whole of faith of the gospel, only a measure of it, which is dealt out, divided, and parted to every man. Some having a greater degree of evangelical light than others, and that all have some, but none all. Do you know what is being said here? Think soberly. Realize what you have has come from God and realize you don't have the sum total of it. Whether we dealt with that when wisdom will die with you that Job said to his three friends. We have a part of what God has taught us. We have a part of the gifts. We have a piece of the great picture. That's important. Use it. But never get to the place where you think the sum total of wisdom rests with me. <laughs> I've got it now. I've got a handle on this thing. I had a guy sit in my office once. He had gone and come and gone and come. And he'd been gone a couple of years and he came again. I won't mention his name because some of you know him. He said, Brother Pat, you're the most unstable man I know. Every time I see you, Every time I see you, you talk about something God has taught you. You've changed from this position to that position. That's instability, he said. I sat and listened to him. I said, brother, I was being kind. I said, brother, the Bible tells us we need to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have the sum and substance of it, brethren. And for almost, for more than 40 years now, I'm learning a little bit about who God is. Hope before I go off to glory to learn a little more. Think soberly, not to think more highly. The Pharisees stood outside that house that day and looked at themselves, thinking themselves to be higher than God. Why would God sit with sinners? Why indeed would He? It's to save them. True conversion produces true humility. It does not produce self-righteousness. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9 Paul said, I am the least of the apostles that I that am not meet even to be called an apostle. And then in verse 10 he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. In Philippians 2 and verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind is let each esteem others better than themselves. True humility leads us to esteem others better than ourselves. But Paul says in order to do that, you have to lay aside something. First, you're going to have to lay aside strife. That's easier to lay aside than vainglory. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Now, the English word vainglory comes from a Greek which means to, uh, which is defined as empty glorying or 
self-conceit. It is groundless self-conceit. It is a view of self that is not based upon fact or truth. The word relates to self-esteem. Desire to honor ourselves, to attract attention, to win praise, to make ourselves the most important or the preeminent one, the main object. What does the scripture say about the Pharisees? As they walked through the markets with their long robes, praying out loud, seeking the preeminence. Paul's command forbids us from any service for the Lord Jesus Christ or in the name of the Lord which results from others viewing us rather than Him. And this is the task of every child of God, not just the preacher or the missionary, but this is the task of every child of God, that what I do in the name of the Lord Jesus, people can see something of Christ in it. That it is not me that is lifted up, are praised, but something of Christ comes across so that men are able to say, praise the Lord. They don't view our intellect as being preeminent or view our physical presence, our skill in teaching or preaching, but they see something of Christ when it is finished or in music or song that they clap for the performer rather than Praise the Lord for the ministry. It even addresses such things as the way we dress. The Pharisees would dress a special way and walk through the marketplace. Why? To get the approval of men. What religious men do you know today that dress in a peculiar way and walk the streets? Why? So they might be called Father. Wear a special ring so you bow down and kiss me. Or the furniture in our church buildings. Nothing wrong with everything appropriate, but how much of what is done in cathedrals and so forth is done in vainglory. People have said to me in Mexico and in India, We'd rather go over here because they have stained glass windows than to come and sit under the tree and listen to you. I said, go. If stained glass windows is what you want, I can't give them to you. But if you want to know the Word of God and the way to the Lord Jesus Christ, I can speak to you of that. The emphasis that men places on religion is in opposition to God's true religion. It addresses anything in our life that leads to self being foremost or uttermost. It deals with a motive and actions that have as their root a desire of self-display. True conversion, brethren, teaches us and leads us to the place and teaches us and leads us to the place where Jesus Christ becomes preeminent. In our lives and in our churches, in our ministry, wherever it is, that Jesus Christ may be praised. God sent the Holy Spirit to this earth that He might lift up Jesus Christ and set forth Christ before the world. Not that He would draw attention to Himself. And we could learn from the triune God that the focus of the Father is that all the glory should go to His Son. 
The focus of the Holy Spirit is that all the glory should go to the Son of God. We learn from God Himself as Christ sits in the midst of the publicans and sinners that it's not about me. And this the Pharisees could not stand. What is He doing sitting with sinners making Himself unclean? And they were enraged by it. And the common people followed Christ while the religious people followed the Pharisees. It was true in that day and it is true in this day. True conversion will not allow us to look at others and say, I thank God that I'm not like you. It will not allow us to do that. True conversion settles down in our heart and says, I'm just like him. Just like him. If it were not for the grace of God, I'm just like him. And many, many, many falter right at this point. Right at this point. They cannot come to Christ because everybody around them is wrong but them. And they cannot take their place as a sinner in need of a Savior. I know of none that come to true salvation until they come to the place where they say, I am the sinner. A young lady who will not forgive her father can never be saved. I know of one case. And I know of another one that did forgive and is a Christian today. A man who's angry with his wife. A woman angry with her husband. Or a man angry with God because circumstances fell in his life that he didn't like. They cannot come to Christ until they put it down and take their place as a sinner. And so the Pharisees stand out the window looking at the table inside and there is Jesus Christ surrounded by sinners. And they can't handle it. They can't stand it. And it is false religion as opposed to true religion. God help us, we need this kind of Christianity. The kind that sits with a sinner. That prays for a sinner. That speaks to a sinner. Without thinking, I'm glad I'm not like this one. I told you the story about us going into that area where the sheriff said, don't go in there. Don't go in there. Nothing but drug dealers and thieves in that community. Don't go there. And John and I said, I think it's a good place to go. There's a bunch of sinners there. And God saves some people. What are you doing on the west side of San Antonio in the middle of Drug Alley, Brother Pat? Holding a Bible study for sinners. Those are the people God saves. He doesn't save anybody else. May God give us a sense of it. Let's pray together.